Hello, welcome to this Institute for Government event on civil service skills. The government is only as good as the people it employs and the decisions it makes are only as good as the people advising on them and making them. And the civil service in particular has come in for a bit of flack in recent years. In the battle for skills, the charge is that the civil service is losing. Lack of specialist expertise, huge and growing staff churn, poor proficiency with data, too many generalist courtiers and not enough engineers, scientists and mathematicians, so the uh, charge goes. Uh, are they justified, perhaps, to a greater or um, lesser degree? And there's a sense in the civil service itself that there are excellent people whose skills aren't made best use of. Um, poor data about staff mean that the civil service uh, underuses the range of skills it should be able to access, and managers aren't always held to account for developing their people and building the best teams. Um, and while barriers remain to recruiting people from outside the civil service, uh, developed over a professional lifetime in other parts of the public, academic, or private sector. So is that critique fair? What progress has been made in recent years? And in the battle for skills, how can the civil service come out on top? My name is Alex Thomas. I'm a programme director here at the IFG, and we're delighted to be able to bring you this event in partnership with Workday. So thank you to um, Richard and uh, colleagues for helping us bring this together. And we've got a fantastic panel um, to discuss this set of issues. Before I introduce them, it's a first call for questions. I've got the uh, Slido screen uh, here, so get thinking in the room. Um, there should be a button on your screen for those uh, watching uh, remotely, uh, and do get your questions in uh, as soon as you can, and I will do my best to get through as many of them as possible. Um, we're also live tweeting from at IFG events. The hashtag is IFG Civil Service, so please follow and uh, tweet along. So to the panel, Pamela Dow, to my uh, right, was until recently head of the Government Skills and Curriculum Unit and right in the centre of this debate. She's now Chief Operating Officer at Civic Future, which is an exciting new organisation working to open up politics and public life to a broader range of talent. Nancy Hay, uh, to my left for those in the room online, hi Nancy, um, is the Executive Director of What Works Wellbeing and is well used to taking a critical eye uh, to how well government policy is really improving people's lives. And Zamila Banglawala was International Director at the Department for Education. She's currently on sabbatical and is one of those people who has managed to successfully move in and out of the civil service, picking up a variety of skills uh, on the way. And uh, Richard Doherty is Senior Partner at our Partners uh, Workday and can particularly help us understand what good looks like in other sectors, particularly around the role of technology in skills. So uh, thank you very much to the panel for uh, joining us. Looking forward to a great discussion. I mean, Pamela, I was going to start with uh, you. It's the obvious place to, to begin. In the introduction, I put the case for the prosecution uh, uh, that the civil service is losing this, this battle for skills. Is that fair or is it not? I think it's pretty fair. I mean, I took on the, the, the role of executive director of the first ever skills and curriculum unit in 2020. And I think it's fair to say that everyone recognised that um, that summer that the civil service government actually had been through the ringer. Um, there has been a range of um, think tank reports, including uh, the venerable IFG, um, NAO reports, and they'd all, ex they'd all exposed the same themes. There were gaps in institutional knowledge. That is to say, the core policy understanding in particular domains, the facts, the, 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 the um, uh, data, the trends, the history, crucially, um, that people in different departments or clusters of department need to have learned, need to have internalised and become unconsciously competent in, so that they can layer on in 
interdisciplinary range and become experts in specific and advising ministers. That is a, that is a common complaint um, and you know, it, it, it still comes up. Um, gaps are also, we're also clear in 2020 um, around stakeholder relations. By that we mean the trust, these deep, broad uh, um, uh, networks across complex sectors um, in civil society, in the front line, internationally in business, that people in departments need to have um, and need to have built up over time so that, you know, for example, I'm reading Kate Bingham's book at the moment, um, the, the, the way she relies on her network over the course of her career is absolutely fundamental to her, to her and colleagues' success. Um, so, uh, and, you know, the, the, this is just something that, we, you know, the, the, the civil studies government needs to improve upon. And then finally, you know, a, co a common, common theme, particularly exposed in 2020, was this sort of gap in just tradecraft, if we call it, call it that, of, of, of governing. Um, that's the sort of non-negotiable um, capability to do the things that you need to do to get things done. Uh, communication, financial acumen, um, uh, you know, commercial procurement expertise, just you know, old-fashioned management of people, of budgets, of projects. Um, uh, and the, 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 the approach we took in 2020 was to try and address all these things. And the, uh, uh, what I thought I'd talk about today is, you know, that, that, that you can go on the, 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 the Skills Campus site and see all the, all, all the different um, things we did between 2020 and 22. But there's some less obvious sort of barriers to that that I think it's worth um, here in the ISD just unpicking today. So by establishing a curriculum framework, what we did was address the conflation of knowledge, skills, networks, and qualities. All of those things are necessary to be effective across a 450,000 strong workforce when you are trying to do some of the most difficult, difficult things and run the country, essentially. Um, all of those things are, are necessary, but they are none on their own sufficient. They are differently acquired. Um, you can acquire some knowledge, some professional expertise in a classroom setting. Um, uh, you can acquire a subset of that um, it, uh, uh, in, you know, in, in professional qualifications. Mostly you acquire it across through the course of a, of a, of a, a, a broad career, um, being supported by your manager, getting constructive, and constructive um, feedback. Um, uh, by observing, by, try, by trying, by failing, and um, by practice, essentially. Um, so people have to stay in post long enough to do that, but also those skills have to be explicitly written down somewhere. Um, and, it's, and it's hard to do that for a 450,000 strong workforce, but just because it's hard doesn't mean you shouldn't try. So the curriculum was essential to doing that. It's a work in progress, but being specific about skills, knowledge, networks, qualities, and how they're acquired, and how a sort of hierarchic, hierarchical by merit institution needs to inculcate them was a really important part of the, of the campus. And linked to that is also specificity, precision. Um, when you are not precise about those skills, ideally objective, provable skills, um, the, the incentives are to tend towards the abstract and the generic. Um, so it's easier to talk about, um, uh, I was at, uh, uh, on a panel uh, just before I left the civil service last year talking about skills for leadership and you know, somebody said dynamic patterning. I don't know what that is. 
Um, it's it's um, it, and it, it's uh, it's in, it's an interest interesting in leadership theory, I'm sure. But when you are a junior leader or a or or, or a leader in the civil service, you need you need much more specificity and uh, and precision about the sort of skills that are required in that job to be effective. Um, uh, the the other thing that we did in establishing the campus was 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 um, try and shift the relinquishment of some of this responsibility from just HR. Um, uh, you um, when a, you know uh, um, uh, as often happens with a profession and particularly dare I say a sort of slightly um, uh, you know new and possibly insecure profession in a managerial um, a bureaucracy um, sort of Masonic guild behaviour take uh, uh, takes hold. Um, and you can and, and jargon and codification um, becomes a sort of protect become, becomes a, a, a way to protect territory, um, uh, and you know this is the, I'm not picking on HR. This happens. This is, this is a well-known phenomenon, isn't it? Um, but when you when that happens, um, you you uh, absolve everyone else of the responsibility to think about their own and their people's skills. Oh, you're my L you're my L and D person, are you? Well, I don't have to worry about it then. And you also get that tendency towards abstract, generic concepts. Um, so you, you, you don't get the precise knowledge and skills. Um, so the, the, the responsibility of the curriculum, the responsibility of the skills campus, the responsibility for training to a much broader group of people. And we were really lucky in having Sarah Healy, Tamara Finkelstein, Susan Ackland-Hood, yeah, um, Matthew Rycroft, um, Angela McDonald, I'm not going to name them all. And the, you know, the cabinet secretary himself, Simon Case, put a lot of time between 2020 and 2022 in making this a priority. And that really matters because it has to be everyone's responsibility in a human capital business. And then finally, um, just while, while I've got the floor, the thing we didn't manage to do, but I think is the natural, um, logical next step of, of, of the skills agenda is, is um, objective assessment. Um, as Adrian Waldridge so brilliantly argued in his sort of history of, 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 of you know, meritocratic institutions, the only thing that's ever actually worked for social mobility, inclusion, um, you know, while retaining um, performance and meritocracy is obje objective assessment. So I say bring back civil service exams. Yes, um, help people who don't have um, uh, the, you know, the, the, the sort of advantage of, um, uh, uh, or, you know, of, 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 of privilege or, 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 or connections so that they can you know, train for the, the exams or, or, or gain them. But, um, but that's the only way you can, you can, you can stand up uh, uh, confidently and say, I know my people at entry, at progression to senior civil service have these skills because we have objectively assessed for them. Mm. Might stop there. <laughs> really interesting. Thank, thank you, Paula. We'll come back to a lot of those themes, including objective assessment, and uh, I think that t tees up the conversation really, really nicely. Uh, thank you. So, I mean, Zamila, I'll, I'll, I'll turn to you next as the sort of you know the jobbing civil servant, if you like. Your your experience, as I said at the, at the start, you've been in and out of the civil service. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I guess the sort of starting point. Do you feel that the civil service was able to use the skills that you have uh, and were you sort of deployed in the best possible uh, way as a civil servant and do you recognise the picture that, that Pamela paints? Sure, thank you. So great to be here, great to see so many people. Um, so when I first started, I think it's important to say uh, there was something called the strategy unit inside cabinet office, which was Blair's think tank. Uh, and it was made up not only of civil servants, it was people from the private sector, people from universities, local government, from the United Nations, uh, INGOs as well. So it was a very brilliant, multidisciplinary, multi-skilled outfit. 
Uh, and so I learned very quickly that there were lots of transferable skills you could get in government, but also that you should learn from those around you. Because you know, when you have a mix of different skills, different ages, different grades, it's a perfect way to learn. And I was also very aware that you know, the strategy unit no longer exists. So how many of those sort of nucleuses there are in government, I think is a shame. But what was clear to me at the time was, you know, we used to call it hard skills and soft skills, now we call it EQ and IQ. Those things that we know that you just mentioned, Pamela, right? Communications, influencing, being able to understand data, doing sound analysis, and then talking to wide ranges of stakeholders from you know, number 10 down to nurses and GPs on the ground. That is a honed skill. You, know, you can't just go on a course and learn that. You learn by doing as well. Um, and so that was my first foray into the service. But I very also quickly learned as a policymaker, you have to learn delivery. Because there's no point coming up with brilliant ideas if you don't actually know what challenges delivery people face, what program issues are, what procurement issues are realities, as you said, Pamela. So there is a very real mix of policy as a profession is not honed enough in the service. We have statisticians, we have economists, we have social researchers, those are actual professions. Uh, and they're trained and supported, whereas policy is not supported in the same way. The policy profession as a network came along much later. Um, and so I left government to be able to learn those other skills. And when I joined the United Nations, I thought it was wonderful. They ask you, what do you know about different cultures? How many languages do you speak? How do you survive in different countries? Uh, most of my questions were also about, you know, how much of your project is going to help women? How much of your project is going to help young people? And I realized in the service, no one ever asked me any of those questions. And even when I came back into the service, having worked for the UN in other countries, nobody asked me those questions again. So I realized we can all have individual skills that we hone ourselves, different cultures, diversity, but it's not necessarily the something the service asks you unless you're inside the foreign office, which is a real shame. Uh, so I hope we come to talk about that as well, because that also leads to your diversity of thought. Um, and then in my final role in government, my second final role, the race disparity audit was a brilliant setup in cabinet office, which was a real multidisciplinary team. So we were policymakers, analysts, digital people, program people. And so it was a very good nucleus of actually taking a project from start to finish, uh, but also learning digital capabilities, because I think that's also something the service is going to need. So whilst we're not trying to create Olympians, because you know, that isn't easy for anybody, I think it's important to recognize that you know, EQ and IQ is important, but so is diversity of thought. So is the skills people have when they come in. And I've had to leave several times to actually get other skills because I realized I wasn't going to get them in the service. Um, and then the most recent example in my role was just concurrent crises, dealing with Brexit, dealing with COVID, dealing with well-being issues that you know, your entire team faces. Uh, and you know, resilience isn't something you can buy, nor is it something someone can teach you. You have to train yourself, but you can learn from others in terms of how they're coping with it. Uh, and genuine calm as a leader was something I learned very quickly. If I wasn't calm, my team was never going to be calm. So you've got to hone into that as well. Um, and so I think these things matter. And the other point Pamela raised was, you know, just how long we used to stay in roles. When I first started in the service, it was very normal. People moved after one year, 18 months. And, you know, we thought that was enough. We thought that was, you know, you did your project, you move on. Now I make a point of staying at least three years in a row because I realize you have to see some of these things through. You want to be able to see them through. And people need that stability before you hand over. You want to be able to say, okay, I actually achieved this thing. I have some legacy, but also it will stand on its own feet. So I think those things are things that we need to talk about as well. So some of these are real skills that you can train for, 
that you can learn. Others are you're going to have to learn them in the role. But I think what the service has to recognize is, is some of these roles are not you know, shaped the way people are. Some of us are coming in and out all the time, but it's not as easy to get back in. Uh, or it's not as easy to leave. So I'm now on sabbatical again. I'm enjoying it. Uh, we'll see if I come back. <laughs> I'll stop there. No to stop. Um, uh, thanks, Samina. And um, uh, I'm going to sound like I'm obsessed with civil service churn, but it is interesting, that, to your point there, that the, the uh, numbers having gone down a bit and now gone up quite mm -hmm. a lot, um, which I think is a problem we may um, come back to. And Nancy, um, Zamila there talked about um, delivery and uh, focus on uh, what works. Um, uh, Pamela talked about specificity and uh, kind of precision in some of these things. I mean, perhaps you can tell us a, a bit about you know, why you think it matters. The discussion can seem quite abstract. Bring us, bring us into the real world. And so, so why do the skills matter is because we need to be able to deliver to improve people's lives, which is what we're the purpose of government, but also actually of civil society more generally. So these skills are transferable across the wider public sector and civil society sector beyond. So, um, and I think we should be allowing people to move in and out more. Um, and there's a couple of things I wanted to say, having done two um, stints of seven or eight years in, in jobs um, with, with this, this in mind, and particularly having set up the policy profession in government from 2008 to 2014. So the reason I did that was because um, these skills are teachable, they are learnable. And I think it does need to be not just the HR profession, it needs to be a combination of the two. Um, I think that we've focused um, uh, a lot on the leadership, the management, the, the general skills, the project management and things, which which are teachable and you do learn it, but you need to keep learning it throughout the, your career and you keep coming back to that learning. But the policy skills, I think, are really interesting because without the context of public policy, it's just decision making. It's decision making in the context of public policy. So when people are coming in, whether as a policy official or as a specific expertise, you need to learn really, really quickly what those skills are uh, and how you can develop them and where you specialize and where you don't. And I think um, the policy curriculum and the policy standards are there and ready to use. And I don't think we use them in a very good way yet. I think they originally talked about um, large numbers at scale, uh, getting qualifications in and sort of reintroducing that, that exams and actually I think we've done quite a good job on the senior leadership which is still going on on policy skills that you've described uh, after all of that time but we haven't necessarily got transferable um, qualifications at more junior levels that you can take with you and build over your career taking it in and out of different bits of public service whether that's the knowledge of your subject which is what the what work centers really brilliantly do they become this institutional knowledge so that um, you can, um, uh, we noticed that people, there was a high turnover that, that that institutional knowledge is in people and is in, in, in the history of the subject. So how do you get that knowledge quickly? How do you find the people quickly that can do that? And there's ways of organizing that uh, of which the what work centers are part of that. So holding that knowledge, what have we learned over decades about how to do this well? Um, but also that policy expertise and then also that general how do you manage, lead, deliver well, um, which you develop over the course of your career and who's responsible for it. But the key bit is, is you can teach it, you can develop it and we could probably test it and keep that qualifications with us. And we need to be able to do it across 
um, the whole of the public sector and civil society and probably beyond. Um, and so that people coming in with expertise in commercial skills, in digital skills, in engineering, very, very quickly learn enough about policy to be able to reform quickly and vice versa. Thanks, Nancy. It's interesting. And, and tease up actually what I was going to ask Richard about the private sector, other organisations, uh, what, what good looks like uh, outside um, uh, outside government. Does this, I mean, how does this conversation uh, resonate with you? Is it, is it a very civil service focused one or, or is there stuff to learn from outside? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, every, every organisation we talk to uh, is focused on skills because they've either got skills gaps today or they can see further down the road, 12 months away, two years away, they're going to have skills gaps based upon their strategic plan. And perhaps I should just quickly, 30 seconds, introduce who Workday is as an organisation, because you're probably wondering who is this bloke from Workday. So we are an enterprise solution provider for HR and finance. It's obviously the HR part that we're particularly interested in today around the skills discussion with 9,000 odd customers around the world. And our customers are managing over 60 million employees in our system. So, you know, and you know, Innovate UK, Crown Commercial Services, Department for Education, uh, British Heart Foundation and John Lewis, Waitrose, uh, NatWest Bank, Lloyds Banking Group, Rolls-Royce and so on. So, you know, we're a large organisation with a fantastic uh, client list. And for years we've been, five years I think, we've been really focused on developing functionality in the HR system to manage skills. And why is that? Because, frankly, most organisations, and it sounds to me it's the same in the civil service, they don't know what skills they've got So if you in the workforce. So if you don't know what skills you've got, how can you possibly build out a plan in terms of what skills you need to acquire, who do you need to develop, and so on? So if I give you some examples, so um, Lloyd's Banking Group uh, are going through a massive transformation, right? So fintech, uh, you know, the, the, that area banking is changing dramatically in terms of how they deliver their services. I mean, how many of you have been into a branch recently? Anyone put their hand up? Okay, a couple of people, well done. So, <laughs> So yeah, the majority of us now manage, manage our banking sort of services through, through an app or you know, on our phone or, or, or through our browser. So the retail banks are closing branches, right, because they're not economically viable. Um, now, Lloyd's Banking Group, I was on a, a round table with them recently, and you know, in terms of what their strategy they're adopting with the employees who are in those branches, they're saying to those employees, right, okay, they can see that there's what we call a, a skills adjacencies. So they don't necessarily have the right skills to move into a technology role, but they have skills related to the types of skills that are, are required in technology, maybe in project management, in product management, whatever it may be. So they're offering those people in the branches saying, look, the branch has got to close, but actually we want to give you an opportunity to evolve into a role in our technology department, which is growing you know, significantly, which I think is fantastic, right? In the old days, they've just got, no, not Lloyds Bank, but generally in the old days, organizations which have got rid of people, right? And then hired some new ones. But we're seeing really the focus is um, most of our uh, uh, clients, it's about developing your existing uh, employees, uh, helping them grow. Um, but really, you need the data first, right? And um, I don't want to talk for too long, but the the, the, the reason why organisations haven't been able to do this is because skills data is really difficult to manage. It's changing all the time, particularly on digital skills, right? We've got more and more digital skills appearing, you know, what feels like on a monthly basis, and more and more skills are becoming obsolete. 
than ever before. So to, to, from a technology perspective, to manage that data, and there are tens of thousands of potential skills, most organisations would give up. It's just too difficult. Um, and what you don't want is employees just entering skills freehand, right? Because then it's just a nightmare. You've got no, no good data. Um, so in our technology, you know, using machine learning and you know, pumping through millions and millions of sort of skills records, we're organising that data automatically for our customers, so taking away you know, that, that, that maintenance overhead. And one final, one final uh, observation. Um, I think you need to, with skills, with, with employees, you need to take a bottom, what we call a bottom-up approach. So you need to ask the employees, what skills have you got? Um, and you need to have a clear communication program about why should they bother telling you what skills they've got, what's in it for the employee. And what's in it for the employee should be, well, if, if you fill out your profile, you tell us what skills you've got, guess what? Opportunity is going to open up for you within our organisations. And um, final example would be Rolls-Royce. Um, that knows they've got, I think, 30-odd thousand engineers, 60-odd thousand employees worldwide. This is the, uh, the engines, not the cars. Um, and they are rolling out our solution for, for, for skills um, because they want to become a more agile organisation. They want to be able to react much faster to, you know, and be much more innovative to market changes, respond to competition and so on. So they just sort of, they, they switched on the functionality around gathering uh, employee skills and they turned on something called a talent marketplace. And the talent marketplace is a, a revolutionary new way of organising work. So you're not defined by your job. Your job no longer defines what work you do. Your skills define what work you do. So Rolls-Royce will be creating these temporary teams. Uh, and they say, right, we're going to work on this project and we need to get this outcome. And I need 10 people. And I need these people with these skills on. So how would you do that today in the civil service? Well, perhaps it might be people you know. And I think bring these people together. But actually, there's a whole huge pool of untapped talent, right, in, in, you know, with all these skills that you don't know about yet. So with Rolls-Royce, they, they released this, this, this talent marketplace and people, it was disc discretionary time. They still had to do their day job, but they could work on these projects. And they, they did a pilot. And what was really interesting was um, out of nowhere, with people were still doing their day jobs, but out of nowhere, and this was with, uh, I think, about 500, 600 employees involved in the pilot, a thousand discretionary hours appeared from nowhere to work on these strategic special projects, but people were still doing their day jobs. So there's this pent up demand, I think, with most people, you know, myself included, I want to pick up new skills, I want to share my skills, I want to work on interesting projects. So, the, so this new way, potential way of working, you know, is driven by skills, but the, at the starting point is you need to gather that data first. Otherwise, how can you build a strategy if you don't know what skills you've got? Thanks, Richard. Yeah, I, I do think <coughs> it's really, yeah, sorry to be a broken uh, record on it, but it is really important to then be clear about the, di the difference between knowledge, skills, interdisciplinary range, qualities, because there is a tendency. I reckon everyone in this room is brilliant at competency-based interviews. I reckon we're all really good at describing a time when we saw the big picture. Um, I love doing interviews like that. I've got a social studies degree. Um, it, is a, it is a barrier to entry. And, 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 and ironically, all the attempts to try and be more open uh, and encourage more diversity of thought have inadvertently led to this sort of um, uh, shift towards these abstract generic concepts, which are so easily captured by people with privilege. When you are more specific, 
um, about things that people outside the civil service recognise as actual things. So I've had so many people contact me about, oh, I'd quite like to get into the civil service. Um, I've seen the job description. I know what I mean by policy, but you seem to mean something completely different. <laughs> so having to explain the sort of Byzantine, Byzantine word, words, um, uh, words that we use. The, I think the, the, the concept of success profiles and competency interviews was well meant to try and be inclusive, but actually what it's done is create a sort of guild um, uh, and only precision is going to help that. And just, I mean, just, to, just to be clear, when we talk about skills, I'm not talking about competencies because competencies is a, is a top down. It's defined by the organization and it's evaluated, it's rated and it's, it's linked to a job. Skills, something totally different, totally mm. different. Yeah. Interesting. I'll, um, I'm going to come to questions really um, uh, soon, but because uh, uh, they're all coming in as, as I can see. Um, there's one particular thing, actually, picking up on what uh, Richard said, I was going to put to you, Pamela, which was about we've talked a lot about uh, the civil service not having data about the skills that exist, and I think it's it's very easy to fall into a uh, you know, and there's a lot of justification into a kind of the civil service needs more data experts, it needs more scientists, it needs more um, engineers or whatever, all of which is true. Um, but there's this persistent feel that the civil service isn't making the most of the skills of the people mm -hmm. that it already has because, to Richard's point, it doesn't know who they are and what they're doing. I mean, what's your assessment of kind of where the civil service is at on that? Yeah, it, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it's really hard. You've got to start somewhere, haven't you? And, and again, you've got to you've got to be um, find definitions that are shared. So, language users are really easy. To, one started, you know, and and I were, talk, were talking earlier. She speaks. Is it six languages? Four. Four <laughs> languages. Six, I wish. But the, the, the organisation <laughs> has never really know that because I never wanted to know that. I never asked her because um, it's not been instrumental to her to her paper job. Where, and there's loads of things that people can do, loads of, ex loads of past experience that people have got, that if it's captured somewhere, and, you know, and, 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 and you know, technology's never been more enabling to be able to do a search and say, you know, back in the midst of time, I was a lobbyist and have some understanding of the pharmaceutical sector and some understanding of transport. I've never actually used it directly in a job, but somewhere it should be, it should be easy for people to be able to say, well, who's got some knowledge there? Um, so when the unexpected crisis happens, um, when the pandemic hits, you can quickly assemble people who've got that sort of, uh, that sort of understanding. Um, and no, we, we, we're, we're not good at that, partly because we're slightly constrained by this sort of, we must define things by the job. I mean, it, you know, it's almost got to the case now that you're, you're actually not allowed to ask people what experience they've got in, in a job interview, which is just bizarre to mm -hmm. anyone else apart from, uh, apart from people in, in, a, you know, in a slightly rigid interpretation of, of public sector, sector fairness. Yeah, and the, the sort of prioritising of fairness over effectiveness some, sometimes is, a, of fairness, yeah, is, 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 is uh, a, a big point, I think. I mean, to me, you might want to pick up on some of <coughs> what Pamela just said, but the other point I was going to ask to, to, to you or, any, or anyone else is the, um, the barriers to entry for new, um, uh, for people with very specific experience or talent that they've yeah. developed outside yeah. the civil service. Pamela, you touched on the kind of competency-based interviewing and the, and the get feeling of a, of a guild. There's also just quite a lot of kind of bureaucratic paperwork um, obstacles. Again, yeah. as someone who's moved in and out, uh, uh, what, um, uh, what could be done to improve that? So, I mean, I learned from somebody a long time ago that, you know, TORs on jobs are really useful, but, you know, don't apply for a job based on the TOR because most people never have everything that's on a TOR. 
Uh, and so I, I mean, you know, this data that shows different genders respond differently. If a guy has about a third of what's on a TOR, they apply for a job. If a woman has less than 70%, she won't apply for a job. So I've decided to apply the guy approach and just say, right, if I like the look of the job, I'll apply and let them decide if they think I've got the skills or not. Because the job description doesn't actually contain usually everything that you need to do the job. So I've learned that's one thing. I think the other part of it is also just when we do ask people to take on jobs, are we really understanding what their capabilities are? So your point in terms of, do we really want to know what skills they have versus what is the problem we're trying to fix and can you fix that? And so I once in my you know, previous team had a physicist and I didn't realize he was a physicist until about 18 months in. I thought it's just shocking. How do, we, how do we not know these key things? So I think taking a genuine interest in what people know is also a good thing. But I think in civil service, the bureaucracy is terrible. If you want to become a director, if you go through the hoops, there are several interviews, there are several tests. That is really off-putting for some people, especially in the private sector, because they don't apply that kind of approach to the system. So if we want a greater diversity in our service, we need to recognize we want people from the private sector, we want people from the NGO sector, we want people internationally as well. But how we approach them is going to matter. Uh, and you know how we want them to engage in the service is going to matter as well. So I think we just need to recognize what other sectors do, but also how long they keep people in roles as well. So definitely it's a four to five year stint in a private sector organization. In the service, we don't have limits like that at all. No, when you take a job, no one says that you're going to stay for three years. We just hand over the job. So I think, again, these things matter in terms of longevity, in terms of skills, but also realism of what it is different people can bring. And so for me, as someone that's moved in and out, I've done it genuinely based on my networks in terms of people who know me, who know the skills I've gained, and I've been honest about what else it is I want to do. And they've helped me navigate the service. But I appreciate not everyone has that capability. Not everyone has those networks. So I think we need to open it up and say, we, if we really want a diverse service, then this is what it's going to take. And I say that as an ethnic minority senior person in the service, there are not many people like us. There are certainly no permanent secretaries still who are ethnic minorities. So if this is going to change, we have to look at the system and say something is not working. Because about 10 years ago, we had three ethnic minority permanent secretaries. So somehow, the numbers are getting worse. So the system itself is not attracting and it's not retaining the people that we think we want in the service. I think we have to be honest about that too. Thanks, Vivian. Um, let's get to questions now. I'll ask one, a very popular one, uh, that uh, I'll put to Nancy first, and Pamela, you might want to come as well, because I suspect it's uh, uh, directed at something uh, you said, and then we'll come into the room. But the, the intriguingly uh, named serving civil servant um, has asked, uh, would reintroducing civil service exams not simply perpetuate the private school Oxbridge bias that we see so much of at the top of the civil service, writing in a particular style is valued more than ability to get things done. And there's quite a lot of agreement for that online. Um, Nancy and then Pamela, and then I'll come to the room. I think this is a really good question. So uh, great policies improve people's lives. They bring together the, the strategic context and the evidence, the democracy and political context and delivery and if you need all three of those for an effective policy and we can all name ones that don't have that and i think you need a grounding across the three and you can specialize in different areas i do think though that we could train that earlier and show those expertise so one of the observations i have having come out in the civil service and work with all night work professions in every single sector 
is that they show off their expertise in a way. They have letters after their names. In the civil service, you take off any degrees <laughs> that you have off to your name. You take off that doctor, you take off that professor, and it's really unusual. And it's a very, very different way of working. Um, so I think we don't do that. But also, learning is a massive win in terms of high-performing organisations. You need achievement, but you also need learning. And it's also a brilliant well-being win, as are professions, because you're sharing you're connecting around joint interest and, and enthusiasm. So I think this could be a really easy win that should be at the core of what we do, but we should train policy skills as well as, and recognize those policy skills that are developed in the civil service as well as out of it. And you need a way of doing that. And whether I don't think it's necessarily civil service exams, but you could certainly accredit those skill sets around strategy, a democracy and delivery that are in the policy profession framework. No, I mean, it's why I said uh, you, uh, I said it last and, um, and said it was something we didn't achieve. People are terrified of objective assessment, aren't they? I mean, every institution is terrified of objective assessment. All I'd, I'd say two things in response to that. Um, I mean, I completely get the point that, you know, it's, it's, it's the 11 plus argument, isn't it? Um, uh, posh people will train for it. The middle classes, the middle classes will school their kids for it. And there's loads of ways you can make sure that, you know, a, a, a what is going to be assessed for, the knowledge that we're looking for, the objective uh, understanding that someone has the skills that they say they have rather than just blagging it in an interview. There's loads of ways to do that and um, to, to, to make it more open and transparent. But the, the two things I'd want, I'd want to say are, first of all, Adrian Waldridge's book, as I said, I mean, it is, a, it is an absolutely masterful history of you know, uh, the ways in which we moved from an aristocratic, courtly, you got your mate's jobs, you bought your position in the army, to, um, to actually um, uh, uh, being more open and more inclusive in all, our, in all our democratic institutions by having clear and open objective ways to assess talent. And the, 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 the uh, response I'd want to make um, uh, to our good questioner is, um, and, 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 and all those wanted to ask it, don't you think the current process of blagging in interviews is loads more easy for a middle-class public school educated kid to gain? Of course it is. Takes us right back to Northcote Trevelyan and the sort of founding of the, you know, I, people uh, uh, often have this sort of conception that uh, the founding of the civil service was um, around some sort of sense of impartiality. It was more about skills and, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly uh, so. uh, getting exactly into that. So. Jamila, you want to come in briefly and yeah. I will go to questions. I yeah, no, no, just a quick point about the exam. Hmm. So a lot of, for those of you who don't know, a lot of the civil service exams are timed. So you know, how quickly you can answer a question, whether you answer it correctly or incorrectly. And when I did this, it's been a few years now, uh, at the end, uh, you get an assessment, and the guy tells you, you know, here's how you did. And my assessor said, Zamila, I need to ask you, do you speak several languages? I said, I do, why? He goes, because we've learned that people that speak several languages read slower. And so you might answer the question correctly, but you read slower, which means the speed at which you do this isn't the thing that we should test. But he only knew that because he asked me after. So there is a diversity point, even to the exam, which if they don't ask you, then you would fail. So I think we need to be just cognizant of how we do these things. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Questions, I keep promising. So we've got a few, let's take uh, three at a time. And I see there's a, uh, someone at the back who's, who's very keen and then I'll work my way around the room. <laughs> Hello, hi, I'm Chris Pook. Um, until about two weeks ago, um, I was a civil servant and I had been a civil servant for about, well, for over 20 years. I used to look after the government science and engineering profession. So I agree entirely with the comments and I think the reflections here that there is a big cultural issue in the civil service. I, I know people who have taken the doctor off the front of their names because they don't want to be pigeonholed. 
Um, and I think a big part of the issue here is making the distinction between, uh, let's say, science or engineering as a body of knowledge, which uh, you need a particular uh, degree or expertise to be able to understand, and science or engineering as a way of thinking about things and tackling problems. And I think it's really important to find a way to bring that into the policy-making process, into the civil service. And particularly important to create an image of the civil servants as a place of the civil service as a place that attracts those people in the first place. And I think that's a big issue. Second point, and, and the question I wanted to ask about actually is around mobility, which I think is an incredibly important factor in helping to upskill the civil service, either by allowing people to come in, knowing they can leave uh, with their qualifications and professional skills intact or at least maintained, and vice versa. And yet there's a question in the back of my head which says, so how does this interact with the business appointment rules and conflicts of interest? Because we have to be able to maintain uh, uh, the integrity and the impartiality of the civil service, but in a contradiction in many ways, we want people to be able to keep in touch with those industries and those um, businesses and the backgrounds from which they came while they're in the civil service. So how do we resolve that? Thank you. I'm, I'm going to hold back from uh, venting on uh, COBA uh, because we've written plenty about it and I think the panel should, uh, uh, should say what they think. But uh, yeah, the person to your, to your left. Yeah, thank you very much. I found the discussion very interesting, pluses and minuses on each side. I think the most important thing is culture. My father used to say there are no suddenlies. Um, suddenly doesn't happen. Suddenly is a result of uh, lots of things. And uh, um, from my own background, um, uh, going over several generations, that has helped me, having also lived on four continents. But even with that, sometimes you, you are enabled to overcome the structural nuances and experiences of other people because they have one type of experience and when you, even me, try to change, see something which is not familiar, we quickly put it in the pigeonhole. When I hear about um, disadvantaged people, there have been lots of disadvantaged people, minorities who've gone to Oxford and Cambridge over several generations who are not in the civil service. Now, why is that? So when we, ex when we expand our experiences, that's what I mean by intersectionality. It's not only about thought, it's about understanding different cultures, um, opening yourself up, finding the common ground, and that impacts on, on policy as somebody who is a scientist as well as an economist. I land with this, we were having the discussion of what's happening with the economy, and I said, We've moved, we, we had an economic, and I use the word economic very broad, way of looking at things. We have a model, and how good the model is, is dependent on the variables you put in. And the variables you put in is dependent on the school of thought and the experiences. To an accounting, which I heard some people say, where you count what is familiar, what is always there. Now, when you're doing what is familiar, you will get what is familiar. Whereas if you use the accounting model, where you are constantly observant about changes and what's going on, and you're changing the variables, and you're aware of how to use the data, because there's always data cleaning and MR, um, machine learning and AI, then we will go forward. And it all comes down to culture. We need to broaden our experiences. We need to read more. So I just wanted to throw that in, and thank you so thank much you. for the great work you're doing. As I said, positive and negative, so I need to open it.
Thank you very much. And I think there was another quick question at the front here, was it? Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it's pretty short. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she should have covered what I wanted to say. But also, I, I, I wanted to touch on the skills data uh, becoming obsolete and you coming in to manage the different organizations. You mentioned Rolls Royce, John Lewis, and all. The, and I, I was just curious as to how they were outsourcing that sort of skill. Okay. Yeah. Thank, thank you very much. Richard, do you want to pick up on that first? Yeah. And then we'll yeah. um, so, I mean, essentially what, what organizations are doing is they're, they're looking at a job. Right? That's, the, that's, that's, the, that's the way we organize work, isn't it, by jobs? And they're, they're beginning to break down those jobs into tasks. And some of those tasks can now be automated. You don't need people to do them, right? And there's quite, quite a lot of those tasks. And so, so, the, so the, you know, data entry is becoming an obsolete skill, right, because, yeah, um, for instance. So, um, so that's what I meant. So these skills are just disappearing, you know, like um, you know, the ability to navigate. We don't really need that anymore, do we? We all use a, a sat-nav, for instance. Um, and then there's these new skills coming along. So our software helps manage that skills data. It's, it's a software platform. So you've got it on your phone, you've got it on the browser, uh, and your employees are self-serving, and they're, you know, they're looking at their payslip, they're logging time, they're doing all that stuff in a HR system. But in, additionally, we're also helping to manage the, the skills data. And with that sort of data crunching and the AI, that the, the skills data is automatically being updated over time. So it doesn't, so the actual data doesn't get out of date. Because that's the other big problem. It's like painting the fourth bridge. As soon as you've finished painting it, you've got to start again. Right? It's, it's the same with skills data if you're trying to manage that because it's changing, but we take care of that. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Richard. Um, the advisory committee on uh, business appointments and uh, uh, some of the uh, challenges around uh, mobility there. Who wants to take that? Uh, Nancy? Well, I'll come on to mobility because I think it's important generally for, for, for work uh, as we need it. So what we see is employment is a big, big, big part of our lives. It's the third biggest driver of adult well-being. So work is important. It's what we spend most of our working age on. And yet we're, we're happiest at 23 and 68 and most miserable in our 40s, which is often where our managers are. So bear that in mind when you're thinking about managers' well-being. But so this what often happens is we, we, we do our training, we get stuck. Uh, and we need to allow that mobility to happen, to keep people interested, to keep people learning. So I was really excited to hear this idea of helping employees grow as, as something that we should be continuing to do. So I think generally as a policy area, skills, continuing to learn, to be able to transition to different jobs and careers in later life, maybe at different stages. So these things like teach first and teach later, all of these are gateway entries into professions into new ways of working are absolutely what we should be doing and allowing more generally and the civil service should be part of that. I also think though that there are real reasons for that integrity. So we also know for high wellbeing nations, um, lack of corruption between government and business and charities is really important as well. So that trust is absolutely essential for our social capital at a top level, our functioning of our democracy. So we do need those safeguards, but they have to be proportionate because if we don't function effectively as a government, that has huge implications for those people who absolutely rely on it for their for their lives. Um, and the last thing to say is that the research I did in the civil service uh, is a really interesting one. So 
I looked at people who were doing degrees and their master's studies and their, 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 their projects they were doing for their degrees. And they were fantastic, super exciting projects. But what was happening is that they stay with that individual. That learning didn't get back into the system at all. So that individual was trained up and they moved. They took that learning with them. The, the organisation didn't hugely benefit at that point from that learning. And I wanted to pick up that uh, that point about culture, which was actually slightly different one sort of about observing the variables and the data and that's what what works is about so that real curiosity about okay we're trying to do this did it make any difference how do we know um this is what we thought we were trying to do so that really sort of much more empirical approach to policy making and then collecting that knowledge back up again in some institutional way thanks nancy that picks up the Cultural question uh, or points that were made well. Pamela, I'll, I'll lob business appointments at you then. Uh, what's the answer? <laughs> I mean, I think I think what you should do is have Deasel Stewart and William Shawcross come and come and talk yeah. about it. I mean, there's a lot. It's never one thing, is it? Um, I think one of the issues is that once you codify and a, a, a rigid process, um, uh, uh, the game becomes compliance with said process rather than an intelligent, subjective human informed, this person clearly has interdisciplinary range, that interdisciplinary range is valued. Um, and again, I can't recommend Kate Bingham's um, book highly enough on this subject. Um, and I think the only answer is just absolute transparency. This particular job required, um, it's in that Kate, Kate Bingham's role, really good pharma knowledge and networks, really good finance knowledge and networks, you know, experience over a, over a Z-shaped career. Um, you know, that was what mattered. Mm. Um, and, you know, people, you know, made, made something of the fact that she was Jesse Norman's wife, or more fool them. And they just have a look at her skill, uh, the, you know, the range of skills. Um, so, I, so I, I don't, I, I, I do think integrity in the, in the system matters. But I think what we've done is, as, as, as bureaucracies, and you know, I, I mean, private sector, sec, private sector bureaucracies do this as well. You, you, you codify a process to the point of rigidity, um, and then no one applies their brain. <laughs> applies their brain, um, and uh, you know, and, and, and some poor person is going off to do great work in a charity, or 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 absolutely acquire some understanding of a system of a system that they can then bring back in. Um, you know, goes goes through six months of waiting to hear. Um, and someone else goes off to shill for big oil and no one says anything um, uh, uh, um, until the papers find out. Um, but I just wanted to come back in on, 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 on Chrissy's point, it's lovely to see you, Chris, um, uh, the, uh, because I, I do think generalist has become a dirty word somehow in the last couple of years. Um, and, I, and I wanted to share two things. One, one was an absolute blew my mind that, you, uh, that I only found out recently. You know the phrase, jack of, all jack of all trades, master of none. Does anyone know how that phrase actually ends? The full phrase is, jack of all trades, master of none, but better that than a master of one. So it actually means the opposite <laughs> of what we're using at. It is actually a brilliant there we phrase. Go. If we take one thing away. Exactly. <laughs> I, I've been going on about it at every, every, every conversation I've had, boringly. Um, so so, so um, interdisciplinary range is a different thing from superficial generalists, though. Have, having, having understanding of a variety of different sectors and experience in those sectors and crucially knowing people in those sectors so that when you're not the expert in the room, you know who the expert is and you know them well enough to pick up the phone to get them in the room. That's really necessary for government. Um, and too many specialists is actually undermining of government because most of the problems we have are, are interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary. And to the point on culture, I mean, I, I, I absolutely agree 
and culture is the accumulated acts of thousands and thousands of people every day. So again, I'd return to specificity. What do we actually mean? Because there is a bit of a there is a bit of superficiality and performativism performativism going on in in in, in using particularly faddish buzzwords and saying that that's good for culture. I'm not 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 you, of course. I, uh, uh, I'm I'm saying that people are kind of co-opting that as a way to not specify what they're actually talking about, which is how you get inclusivity, which is how you get someone who doesn't understand our definitions into the, into the civil service, because you, you've been really mm. clear about what's expected. So we've got uh, less than 10 minutes to go, so I'm gonna go quick questions and, and quick answers. There was, um, uh, and actually just to note that, that that point about the generalist, I think picks up Martin Wheatley's question about whether the concept of the generalist has uh, had its day. Um, I think we've, we've done that one. Um, there was one, I think, directed at you, Zamila, um, uh, from something you said earlier. Um, what skills have you had to leave the civil service to gain? Um, so when I joined the UN, I wanted to learn delivery because I'd done a year of policy in cabinet office and then I did a year of policy in home office and I thought it was wonderful. You know, you get to see number 10 advisors on a weekly basis, give them your thoughts. But I'd never actually done any of the delivery that I was critiquing. So I figured I have to learn how to do this. Uh, and then when I'd gone to departments, a lot of the people that did delivery had masters in certain things that I didn't have. And I thought, okay, so how am I gonna do this? Uh, and I learned that actually you can join the United Nations and go straight to the field and learn how to deliver massive programs on the ground. So that's one that I learned to do. Uh, the other was uh, partly the point about culture. I wanted to embed myself in a completely different culture to see how problems are solved in other countries. And so I went to the Middle East. Uh, I went to Qatar initially, and then I went to Dubai, and I went to Sudan. And I realized there is a fundamental difference, actually. So all these countries have civil services. They're just very different to ours. They send a lot of their servants to the UK to be trained as well. Um, but I wanted to learn how problems are solved in other countries and what else they take on board. Like I said, they do look at gender, they do look at ethnicity, they also look at religion and languages. These are things that we never look at necessarily in the service. So I think those things are important for us to know now when we talk about diversity of thought, when we talk about culture and how we get diverse stories. Thank you. Quick one, uh, popular question online and then I'll do another round uh, in the room. I'm gonna address this to Nancy from Philip Craig. Does the panel think the functions and professions agenda has lost momentum? Is it as valid today as it was when it was introduced by John Manzoni uh, and others? Sort of 10, 12 years ago. I think it was introduced earlier than that, actually. Um, so certainly I was doing it in 2008 um, when the professions were, were introduced and I set up the policy profession alongside the policy delivery profession. And the fact that they are still going in 2022 is a massive success of policy making, actually, because one of the things that had happened before that is that you'd have an initiative set up in the policy in the centre of government and then it would just peter out and it would keep going. So one of the things that we set our goal was is will it still exist? And the fact it still exists in 2022, having started that long ago, is a major feat in government terms. Has it lost momentum? I don't know. I'm not in the civil service at the moment, but I still do um, training for the policy profession on a quarterly basis. So it does still work, some of the things that we were setting up then. I think there is a real tendency to think that, um, and I think to not read the handover note and to not remember what's gone before. So the idea of history in the policy area is a really, really important one. But just getting things to stick is really, really challenging. And I think we need to keep that momentum, keep renewing this so that we can keep, because it's not something that's done. And it's something that you build over decades. 
and we need to continue to do that. But we have the leadership in place. We now need to extend it down to um, below the senior leadership as well in terms of skills development and really think of this as something that we learn through reflective practice over years and years and years. Thanks, Nancy. Around the room, gentleman there, gentleman there, gentleman there. Work, work along the front. Thank you. Uh, Hans Pung, Chief Exec of Rand Europe. Um, my question's about skills deployment. So we've heard a lot about skills development, skills assessment. We've heard some examples of how you deploy skills, multidisciplinary teams, talent, marketplace. Does the panel have views on where this might be going and where this should go going forward? Thank you. Thank you. Hi, uh, Sahil Shah, Action Council member at the Atlantic Council. I'm curious of the panel's thoughts on the role both of Parliament and of Cabinet when it comes to um, civil service skills reform. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Ray Brown from GP Strategies. Um, just wanted to harness a couple of points that were made earlier. One about, from Richard, about the, the data analysis. And, and it seems to me that it's really important that in, if you're going to harvest that data and use that going forwards, you need a common taxonomy. You need a common understanding of the parlance of what we mean by skills experience. And, and I've not heard anything about that yet, but I'm sure that's something that's in there somewhere. Um, but, but more pointedly to that is if we're going to be forward-looking in these things and we're going to think about mobility, it's not just about harvesting unused capability. It's also about thinking, and if I use the parallel from sport, we have a thing called coachability. So what is somebody's ability to learn and take on new skills as opposed to being backwards looking? So how do we see, my, my, my question is how do we see the balance of skills already acquired with capability to acquire skills in the future? Brilliant, thank you. I'll go around um, everybody really brief uh, answers please and you can pick up on uh, any one of those three in terms of deployment, parliament, ministers, MPs, cabinet. Um, and that sort of taxonomy and coachability. Uh, Richard, do you want to start and we'll work around yeah, and then so, wrap up? Uh, the, 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 the last point there, or the first point of your last point, around having a common taxonomy, you're right, there, there isn't one. Uh, and that is a problem of various sort of, and, and I think it's, there, there are various taxonomies you can buy. Um, yeah, ours is one of those. It's not really, it's, it's a, yeah, yeah. So the, what the software vendors are doing, of which Workday is one, we're looking to have sort of translation engines between these different taxonomies, and we're using machine learning to do that mapping. It doesn't always get it right, but it gets better over time, which is the whole point of machine learning. So, so I, th I think, you know, give it a few years, and you'll have all these different taxonomies uh, and with this sort of uh, middleware doing, doing the mapping. It won't be perfect, but it'll be much better than it is today. I mean, you know, the skills as they're defined on LinkedIn, which we, you know, I, I guess we've mostly got profiles there, you know, the, the definition of a certain skill there will be different to the skill in your HR system to, you know, how the civil service defines it. So, yeah, that is an emerging area. But, it, it, yeah, and it's not perfect yet, but it will get better. Thank you. So I'm going to do mobility for the future and skills deployment. So I think if we accept that the service is going to continue to have serious churn in it, then we need to create an effective mobility model to help people leave and help people come back in and gain skills both times but we don't have a model yet that's gonna work, uh, but we can look to people like me who come in and out and have you done it and say, you know, how long do you need to be out for? What you know, did you gain and when do you wanna come back? And some of those things are known if we just you know, ask those questions openly. So I think we should just grab that by the horns and say, right, churn means mobility. So let's just actually proactively instigate a system that's going to allow that to be possible. On skills deployment, I genuinely believe in fundamental multidisciplinary teams 
analysts, policymakers, digital capabilities, program people, all in one, because any given project needs all of that. And then you can hone in on procurement, you can get contracting skills from different places, but it actually is a very good model. And then those things hold together for several years, because projects take that long from design to delivery as well. But I think we don't promote that enough. And people have a lot of fun in multidisciplinary teams as well, because there's constant learning going on. Uh, so, you know, my digital people in the RG became really good at policy by the end of it. They're like, you know, I was a coder before I started this job, mm. and now I actually know how you talk to ministers. Um, and so I think that, that does need to be promoted and what you can gain in and out of doing it. Thanks, Amina. Um, Nancy, and talking of ministers, that was one of the questions. Nancy. I don't what common, you might have to remind me on the ministerial question. I wanted just to pick up about how skills get organised and how you maintain that interdisciplinary range that, that we were talking about at the beginning bit, so that you don't get funnelled into, oh, you've got learning skills, I go into the end up in the learning space, whereas actually learning, you pick it up and take it into something else with digital and things like that. So you don't get funnelled into a career dead, not a dead end, but you could be, you could, you could have expertise in that area and really develop deep expertise or you can move sideways. So there's one of the other models are that either you, you, there's lots of different ways to have a successful career and how do you do that? What was the minister's question? It's, um, it was about the role of ministers, MPs uh, in civil service skills. We can pick that up with Pamela in a second if that's... Uh, unless, unless you... I mean, I think recognising there is a discrete skill set is really important and it needs that leadership. Um, where we've seen big changes, it's usually had strong leadership. But it needs to sustain over time, which is... Sort of example from 2010 to 2015, having a sort of strong focus on this. But Pamela, wrap really, it up. Really I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to tell back to um, Anansi's point about the, the policy profession. So last year, the anal um, analytical profession and the policy profession did a survey of the skills of uh, people who were in the policy profession, analytical skills of people in the policy profession. It's a fascinating thing. It, about 4,000 people uh, responded. Um, I will share my favourite nugget from it. 31% of policy professionals, that's three one, um, into an anonymous survey, didn't know the difference between a percentage point increase and a percentage increase. Pretty significant, big issue for the policy profession. So um, uh, um, uh, uh, my, 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 my response to Nancy would be, you know, um, yes, it is, it is a thing that the policy profession still exists ten years on, but it's we can't give up on this on on the um, on the clarity of what's expected of policy professions, and that links to the point about the the question about the professions and functions. We quite often lump things together and say it's either a fantastic success, the whole massive agenda, or a fantastic failure. <coughs> Some functions are brilliant, flying. You know, um, Gareth um, Rhys Williams has done brilliant work with the commercial assessment um, uh, centre. Again, objective assessment. Um, uh, the you know the finance function. No one would ever question that that has improved things. Others, others less so. They've been harder to define. They, they haven't had the consistent leadership. So let's just, you know, let, let's just try, uh, as with all um, uh, uh, government, government reforms, um, it's never one thing. <laughs> um, so this sort of constant honesty uh, um, uh, is necessary. And to the point about the role of cabinet, uh, uh, you know, pol politicians and MPs and, and parliament, one of the drivers for what I'm doing now, Civic Future, is a recognition that government is a team sport. Uh, and the, the, the skills and preparedness and aptitude and talent of those in the political roles is as important to get to get right. We were really lucky that um, uh, Michael Gove was in the Cabinet Office in 2020 and, and sort of initiated this whole agenda, building on his long experience as a, a as a reforming minister, a minister across government. But it does, as Nancy said, need that sort of sustained 
recognition, and it's not just about the civil service, it's about every actor in government, 313 non-departmental public bodies, bodies, all with chairs, all with chief executives, all with boards, need to think about their skills and, uh, uh, and knowledge as well. Thank you. We've gone over time, so we'll leave it there. We could have carried on uh, much uh, longer. Apologies to those questions we didn't get to, including some on ALBs and uh, <laughs> uh, uh, non-departmental uh, bodies and, and so on. Uh, the live stream of this event will be on uh, the, our website and on YouTube uh, in the next um, couple of days. Um, I've also a few plugs. We've got a big um, conference coming up next week, next Tuesday, Government 2023. Fantastic lineup there. Um, do check it out on the website. Also, the launch of our big civil service report that comes out each year, Whitehall Monitor, um, is on the 31st of January. So keep an eye out for that and lots of other um, IFG uh, events. Um, thank you very much to all the questions. Thank you to you for coming. Thank you to Workday for um, partnering, with, partnering with us on this uh, event. And uh, thank you very much to the panel. <laughs>